Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Exodus chapter 10. Uh, our portion this week is in the Hebrew is entitled Bo or Go. And we are in uh, the story of the Exodus where we're finishing the final plagues, final judgments upon Egypt. And before the children of Israel will actually go or leave Egypt uh, from it. It also has an extensive uh, portion in here that talks about the Passover, God's commandment to establish a memorial uh, Passover fort. So we're going to be looking into that um, for this portion. The Haftor portion, I'm also going to cover it, comes from Jeremiah chapter 46, beginning at verse 13 through about verse 25. It's a very small portion, and it ties into this portion here. I'll mention that a little bit more as we get into it. But if you would, let's look at Exodus chapter 10, the portion called Bo, and follow along with me as I read to you initially from here. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of the servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And that you will tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I perform my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, before we go any further, uh, this statement here, it's in the midst of these judgments, really reveals God's purpose in this whole story of these judgments being poured out upon Egypt and how he intended to deliver the children of Israel. Now, if you'll recall, when Moses was first dispatched from the burning bush, it, the, the purpose was God wanted to deliver his people. 
and so he said, I'm going to send you and you and the people, they will come out and they will come and worship me at this mountain. And so he, he said, I had have heard the cry of the children of Israel because of the uh, oppression of the taskmasters. And so I'm going to deliver him. I'm going to bring him out. So we have a great story of salvation and deliverance. We have a great story of freedom from it. But one of the things that uh, also is profound about this story is, is that God's real purpose was to use the Egyptians, which, by the way, at that time was the leading world power in the world, to use them to manifest and reveal God uh, so that the Egyptians would know God, so that the, um, the children of Israel would know God, so that the whole world would know God. And this statement here, a reiteration of God's purposes, um, is emphasizing and telling us, the believers of the God of Israel, that as a result of the, of the story of the Exodus, the judgments that fell upon Egypt, the eventual release of us from the children of Israel, that God's purpose extends beyond that one generation and extends to the fact that he wants us to tell our children and our grandchildren the story. Uh, in effect, what God wants is he wants not only that generation to know that he's the Lord, he wants every generation to know that he's the Lord. So he's using this, this situation with Egypt and the release from Egypt for, the, for very specific purposes uh, for us. Now, Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 10, where he emphatically says something that I want you to take note of. Um, in fact, going to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says the, the following, in the beginning of verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was the Messiah. Now, Paul takes the Exodus story and the deliverance out of, and he says this is really a story about the Messiah. This is about the Messiah's redemption. Now, uh, that's pretty easy for us to take into account because, as you recall, the 10th plague, which will be in this portion, is going to be the slaying of a lamb. And we're going to take the blood of that lamb and we're going to put it over the doorposts and we're going to call it the Passover lamb. And they're going to observe the Passover. They're going to be passed from death unto life. And Yeshua the Messiah is going to be coming and doing the work of redemption, and he's going to be called a Passover lamb. And by the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life, we too are going to be passed from death unto life, that we're going to be passed all the way to eternal life. And so this great story of redemption is born out of the, the story that came out of Egypt and is the foundation for us to talk about God saving us. Now, we know our ancestors, our ancient fathers, came out of Egypt. They were delivered. And here's Paul reiterating, don't you know that your father was there? Now, what's really interesting in 1 Corinthians 10, who's Paul talking to? He's not talking to the Jews. He's talking to the Corinthians. He's talking to Gentile believers who have believed in the Messiah. And yet he is saying uh, 
that, that our fathers, you know, our, you know who, who we come from, don't you know they were back there? Don't you know that they were the ones that were being delivered back there? Now, at first blush, people go, uh, what? I, I, I'm not sure I get it. Um, and what is really being said by Paul is he's giving the conclusion of what God was always saying to begin with. And that is that what God said is what I'm doing with Israel is for the benefit of the whole world. It's for the benefit of anyone who will believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that even into future generations from that point, it doesn't make any difference biologically where you hail from, where your actual earthly father's from. What God is establishing here is he's setting up a precedent that these fathers that came out of Egypt, they're, they're essentially your fathers. That God delivered them and that deliverance extends to you and me. And he's, Paul gets this. He fully understands that in his seed, Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He knows that the gospel was first preached by God to Abraham, that this Passover, this historical event of coming out of Egypt is not something just exclusive to, quote, the biological descendants of Jacob and to Israel. Israel, by definition, means the whole kingdom of God. And so the whole kingdom of God includes all the families of the earth, all those that would choose to follow the Lord. So it's, when we read this and we begin to understand this, God is really speaking to every person. And now we here who are in the Messianic movement, some of you may be sitting and listening and saying, well, you know, I know about what the Jews did. I know what God did through the Hebrew people. But, you know, I'm Gentile. I don't, I don't even know where I come from. I'm not real sure. But I want to believe in the Messiah and so forth. I'm, I'm trying to say to you that God from the very beginning was purposing what he did in Egypt with the children of Israel directly for your benefit that you should not in any wise be thinking that you're excluded from this. I, you know, I've repeated to you before, it's God's purpose and intent through these events to reach out to all people who will be part of his kingdom. Paul reiterates that. Don't you know your father came out of Egypt? Because one of the things we teach in the Passover, and you're supposed to teach your son, you're supposed to tell your son, it was I who was in Egypt. It was I who was passed over. It was I who came out of Egypt. You're supposed to teach your son that. And so here's the, this commandment, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson that I made a mockery of the Egyptians and I performed signs among you, that you may know that I am the Lord. This purpose is restated again in the midst of these final judgments. It's a reiteration of what God purposed from the beginning. And it is what is the final teaching when we get done with the whole Passover story and the crossing the Red Sea, coming out, receiving the Torah, and our journey to the promised land. This story of Exodus, of course, carries great themes throughout all of the scripture. And that's part of the reason why our Haftor portion is connected to this is because God, uh, it says here he made a mockery of the Egyptians. Let me tell you what he did. He destroyed the whole place. He destroyed the enemies of the children of Israel. 
And in fact, archaeologically and, and uh, through the study of Egyptian things, there, there is a definite period of 40 years in which the Egyptian commentators specifically, and we think is in the time frame of when this happened, the Egyptian commentators simply just say, uh, this is 40 years, this is when God destroyed Egypt. The, the consequences here wasn't, wasn't a one-year problem for Egypt. It was a 40-year problem. And the children of Israel, when they left Egypt and go 40 years in the wilderness, Egypt was dead. Egypt was destroyed as a nation. Our Haftor portion from Jeremiah 46 is going and remembering later on after Egypt is restored, there was this ancient conflict between Babylon and Egypt. These two great superpowers at the time, Israel's right in the middle, and uh, the prophets, specifically Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others, are warning the leaders of Israel, don't make an alliance with Egypt against Babylon. Babylon's going to be coming and don't make an alliance with the Egyptians. You just sit perfectly still. The Lord will deliver you and take care of you. And essentially, that's what happened. Babylon finally came down, went right through Israel, right into Egypt and destroyed Egypt. So Egypt and Pharaoh was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. And in the same way that God destroyed Egypt when he brought the children of Israel out. And yet he preserved Israel through at the midst of the judgments upon ancient Egypt. He preserved Israel in the time when the Babylonians came down and destroyed Egypt as well. Now, the, the great implications for us are, are very profound. We, you and I today, as we approach the end of the ages, we are equated as being scattered in the nations. In other words, the captivity that we're enduring, we're not in the kingdom, we're not in the land of Israel, not enjoying all the blessings of the Lord that he promised through our fathers. We're, we're scattered in the nations and we're subject to the nations. And the spiritual pattern has already been set for us. It's like you and I are stuck in Egypt. That's being scattered in the nations. We've, we've been taken captive. We don't get to you know, go back to Israel. The, 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 we're all stuck in these nations. And so we're, we're basically told by the prophets, and, and the, the metaphor is very clear, that the difficulties that we are enduring while being in these nations is like the difficulties that our fathers had when they were uh, in, in Egypt. The taskmasters were pursuing them. Things didn't work out legally and so forth. There, there was a time when everything seemed to go good, but it got worse and worse and worse. And today, in the world where we're at, believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are beginning to be oppressed. I, I don't need to go into the, the daily commentary with you, but we have a lot of people in the world who are anti-God. I mean, absolutely don't want anything to do with God. They don't want God to make any of the rules. And so they are moving into this, uh, this kind of thinking and political thinking where they want to oppress people who do believe in God and do want to follow the rules of God. Uh, thus, uh, for the last many years, our government has moved toward being very anti-Christian. Um, they don't do so much anti-Jew because that one's way already been done. But Christians are being killed. In fact, right now and today, Christians are the most persecuted religious people in the world. And nations all over the world are killing them. And our government is not helping them. 
until just here recently uh, with the, the new administration. But for the most part, let's just be honest about this. The, the, our, our nation is divided. The world is divided. And this is coming down to a battle of good versus evil. You know, the people who believe in God versus the people who disagree with God don't want any rules from God uh, whatsoever. And the people who don't want the rules from God, not only are they just saying that philosophically, they're going out and they're violent. They are actually going out and protesting in the streets, destroying property and harming people. And it's going to get worse. And this ancient story of God's people being subject to this captivity, being subject to this kind of oppression and harm, well, we know the great story. God's going to deliver uh, his people. But there's another part to the story. And that part is God's going to make a mockery of them. God is going to destroy his enemies. And the end of the age, the end of the age scenario, the whole reason for the great tribulation is God's judging his enemies and delivering his people at the same time. So that's the ancient story. That's the prophetic for what's going to be coming. Now, let me read a little bit further because we have two plagues here that's going to precede um, the Passover. The first one has to do with darkness and uh, where uh, Moses is going to bring about darkness that will be on the land of Egypt for some three days. Let me read to you some of those words for it. And um, beginning at, um, let's begin at verse 7. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to let the men go that they may serve the Lord our God? Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were, were, back to, were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said, Go and serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going and Moses said, we shall go with our young and our old, with our sons, our daughters, with our flocks, with our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said, thus um, may the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, take heed for evil is in your mind. Pharaoh's basically saying, oh, you all just want to leave. Well, I don't want you to leave. You're going to have to leave your children here. Which, of course, Israel is never going to accept that. And... Um, and so he says in verse 11, he says, Not so, go now, the men among you, serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh is kind of sounds like he's willing to negotiate and allow them to go, but it turns out he's really not. He tells them the children can't go with you. Well, that's not going to work, you know, and Moses knows that. So when they get kicked out, they don't even get a chance to discuss it. Then this is the judgment that falls. Verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. And then they came up in the land, and every plant uh, that was upon the hail left. And he stretched out a staff over the land of Egypt, directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, an east wind brought the locusts. So the locusts hit. And by the way, I'm I said that we were going to have the darkness. We're still going to have the darkness. <laughs> the locusts came, ate everything. And then following that, the darkness comes. And that we see now in verse 17. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. Make supplication. This is Pharaoh. And he would remove this death from me. And he went out from Pharaoh, made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a strong west wind, took the locusts away. 
But the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the sons of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, and there the darkness may come over Egypt, even a darkness which is felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky. There was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from their place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. The last two judgments leading up to the Passover is the locusts come, and then the darkness comes. Well, you know what's really amazing about this ancient story? And we've always said this before, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants, and there's a pattern here of the judgments. And we see the same pattern in the book of Revelation when it talks about the judgments that is going to be upon the world. And what we see in the judgments is there's a judgment coming in the Great Tribulation, uh, that'll be in the final uh, days of the indignation. In other words, it's in the last months of the Great Tribulation, where there's going to be a great darkness that will come upon the earth. And it even tells us what the darkness will be caused by. In Revelation chapter 9, it talks about a, um, a, an asteroid or a comet, a heavenly body, astronomical, strikes the earth. It's a deep impact scenario. And it opens the abyss of the earth and it causes great debris and smoke to fill the atmosphere. This debris that the prophecy speaks of is supposed to darken the sun and the moon and the stars. And so the earth comes into darkness. But at the same time, the abyss that's open is demons come forth that are referred to as like locusts, demon locusts. And these things are big. They're as big as horses. And they come forward in the final days of indignation, the final judgments before the day of the Lord in the Great Tribulation, these come forward. I believe you, the Stephen King and anybody else that writes horror stories has never come up with anything that sounds as scary as what this deal is. Now, here's the, here's the fascinating thing that the, the Scripture tells us. The world is going to go into darkness for essentially five months. These demons are going to be running around terrorizing men, mankind. They can't kill mankind, but they can torment them. And the sting and the harm that comes from them, men are begging for death. This is a terrible, horrific, very scary nightmare that takes place on the world. However, for you and I, we're delivered out of that judgment. And the prophecy goes on to say that we'll have light in our dwelling places. They will be in darkness. And then it goes on further to say that those of the 144,000, the servants that have been sealed by God with the name of God in their forehead to provide deliverance for us, they're able to block these demons. They're able to prohibit them from coming near our people. We'll take refuge in the name of the Lord with them. And even further... And, and I've, I've mentioned this many years before, that prophecy goes on to say that if you can get into something green, if you can get, uh, if you can get camouflaged in green, apparently that's also a defense against these things. We're not quite sure exactly why that is. Maybe that color spectrum is invisible to them. They can't see it properly, having coming out of the deep darkness where they were in the, in the earth. 
But in any case, that's what the prophecy says. So there, it's very clear God has planned a deliverance for his people in the midst of this great judgment of darkness and these locust demon beasts. Now, I know that's so fantastic and, and very difficult for people to quite absorb because I don't think we've seen anything quite like that before. Uh, other than we have the story of these particular judgments that came upon Egypt. I can assure you that when it uses the words, it's a darkness that was felt. This was scary for the Egyptians. This was really scary. Can you imagine for three days, you just cannot see. You're just like blinded. And how do you function? How do, how do you fix a meal? How do you bathe? How, how, you know, if, if, you know, what, what do you do during those three days? It, it would be a frightening experience. Most people have a natural thing where you're thrust into a dark room where you can't see anything at all. It's a, it's a little unsettling um, when you first experience it. Can you imagine in Egypt three days of that? That must have been horrific. Well, you know, we've got five months of this incredible darkness will be coming at the end of the ages. Again, this is another very powerful example of what happened in the Egyptian exodus is something that's projected into the future for the end of the ages, following the pattern of that God intends to deliver us out of Egypt, out of captivity, to bring us to the kingdom um, in the end. Now, the stage is now set for one more plague. This will be the final plague in which the, then the children of Israel are definitely going to be released from it. So looking in um, Exodus chapter 11, at beginning at verse 1, it says the following. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here where he lets you go. He will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. And essentially, the stage is now set to plunder Egypt. And they plunder Egypt. They ask for gold and silver, and the people want them to go, and so they give it to them. And now this final judgment hits. Um, verse 4. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover... There should be a great cry in all of the land of Egypt, such as there's never been before, such as there shall never be again. But against all of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Well, the distinction, the distinction he's referring to is very simple. Life, death. This Passover. If the blood is on the doorpost... Life. If it's not on the doorpost, death comes to that house. And this is the, the ultimate decision of the ultimate judge, the decision of life and death. And God has essentially done everything he can to explain that he wants us to choose life. 
Choose life so that you'll be passed from the judgment of death to life. Now, as I said, this event that took place in ancient Egypt, um, it required them to get a lamb. And actually, they, as the instructions go on here, they gather the lamb on the 10th of Nisan. They essentially keep it in their home for four days. During that four-day period, they examine the lamb to make sure that there's no blemish, no sickness, there's no injury to the lamb. Uh, it's a perfectly healthy lamb. And then on the eve of the 14th, they slay the lamb, and they take the blood from that lamb, and they put it on their doorposts and on the lintel of the door, and they essentially skin the lamb, and they roast the lamb, and the feast meal is to eat of that lamb. They do not keep the lamb over for the next day. They don't try to preserve it anymore. They eat what they're going to eat, and then the rest is burned with fire. So that lamb is for that exclusive, very specific feast. Passover is an observance done in the nighttime. It is not a day observance. And this is the first time in Scripture at this event that God now begins to refer to the children of Israel as an assembly. Up to this point, he just referred to them as the children of Israel, um, a whole group, a smattering of individuals. But on this commandment, for the very first time, he begins to address them as an assembly. And so you hear this instruction that's being given. Chapter 12, now the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all of the congregation of Israel. Speak to the whole assembly of Israel. Up to this point, we have never heard God give Moses an instruction. I want you to speak to the whole assembly. Everything up to this point has been individual instructions to individuals. You know, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh. You know, God tells Moses, he tells Aaron. You know, things like that. This is the first time we hear God now addressing Israel as a corporate entity. And by the way, let me um, emphasize to you how important that is. One of the great comparisons of the covenant that God gives to Moses and the children of Israel versus the covenant that the Messiah gave to us. And if you'll recall, the comparison of the covenant that God makes with um, Israel is to the assembly of Israel, all of the congregation. And later on, when we go to Mount Sinai, it, the commandments, are, everybody gets to hear the commandments. Everybody is a part of this congregation. This is an agreement that God makes with all of the people, and he's treating it as one assembly. This is the congregation of Israel. These are the sons of Israel, and so forth. Now, when we come to the Messiah, it's, there's a comparison made that the covenant that God is making in the new covenant is one in which God will do like what he did before, with our fathers coming out of Egypt, but this time is going to take on a slightly different flavor in that 
rather than a set of tablets that will be given to the whole assembly, God is now going to write the commandments on every person's heart in the new covenant. And so it's like what God is doing here is setting in agreement with the whole people, you know, with all, all of the assembly, all of the congregation. And what the Messiah is going to come and do is he's going to make a covenant agreement like unto the first one, but he's going to do it with you personally. So every one of us come together in covenant with the Messiah, and it's the same covenant, it's the same instructions, but now with the Messiah, it's personalized for you for what was created before for all of us. So in summarizing, we say, that the covenant and what God did with Israel was a corporate agreement. It included the, the whole corporate element of all of Israel, all of the sons of Israel, whereas the Messiah comes and he does one personally with us. Now, um, by the way, uh, let me ag agree with the writer of Hebrews about this. There are some much better features <laughs> in this thing that the Messiah has done with us. But you wouldn't have what the Messiah is doing with us if you didn't have the first thing to begin with. If you didn't have God making this agreement with all of the people, then it wouldn't make sense for what the Messiah is coming and doing for us personally because what he does for us personally as the Passover lamb is predicated and based on what God did for all of Israel. Now, I know a lot of my New Covenant brethren, you know, like to isolate out what the Messiah has done and like essentially regard it as it's a replacement for, for the other and that what God's now doing through the Messiah and his redemption um, is like so unique and so much better that we don't even have to worry about the previous one. And essentially everything that was about the previous one is essentially null and void. It doesn't have any bearing on us because it's been completely replaced by what the Messiah did. That sort of thinking is utterly absurd. That is a person who would draw that conclusion, who flat out has not listened to what the Lord said to Moses and the children of Israel. And of course, um, one of the things I would want to remind you is that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God doesn't change. And oh, by the way, back at this Passover and back at this agreement that God was making with Moses with the children of Israel at the time, the Messiah was present. And the Messiah is equally a part of this agreement with Israel every bit as much as you think of the God of the Old Testament. He is this God of the Old Testament too. And this idea of, well, we have one God over here in the Old Testament and a different God here in the New Testament, that, that's absurd. It's absurd. It's completely contrary to how God has manifested himself, how he reveals himself, how he describes himself. And so anybody advocating such a position and then carrying that out to the extent of let's ignore what God did here under the definition of salvation deliverance, what he did here, which we call is redemption, somehow what the Messiah done. Uh, because it's now personalized and the commandments are written on the heart, that it completely replaces the other, rendering it null and void, and this is what we really do, and so forth. Silly. Silly. 
I would, let me just go one step further. These instructions are going to tell us how to keep the Passover, how to have the Passover that took place there, and to have the memorial of a Passover that Israel will do. <clears throat> let me take you to chapter 12, verse 14. You'll see in this portion, that's what God gives instruction. Now this day, referring to the Passover, shall be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, and you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. My Bible does not say until Jesus Christ comes. It doesn't say that. It's a permanent ordinance. By the way, when Messiah Yeshua did come, guess what he did? He did this. He did this. In fact, he commemorated at the Passover what we typically refer to as Christian communion, the eating of a piece of unleavened bread, the drinking of the cup, is part of the Seder meal and the Seder of the Passover, how you observe the Passover. And he didn't change the Passover. He explained what the Passover was really showing about him. The Passover was always about the Messiah. He's the one called the Passover lamb. Paul calls him the Passover lamb. He's the one that passes from death to life. We believe that the shedding of his blood is how we have life, just like the lamb was. And when Yeshua was with his disciples, he observed this memorial feast and he used it to inaugurate the new covenant. Now, here's the irony. When I was a young man, and I became a believer as a young man, nobody ever said to me, my previous teachers, nobody ever said, hey, by the way, you know, on the eve of the 14th of Nisan, now that we believe in the Messiah, we should be observing the Passover. The great story of God's redemption about the Passover lamb, and we should be observing the same feast that Yeshua did with his disciples. Now, mind you, I was told we were supposed to do what the Messiah said. We're supposed to follow his example. But it turns out that when it comes to this Passover business, keeping this feast and so forth, that didn't apply according to them. And I, was and I had some good teachers in the faith. And I never heard a single one of my teachers ever say we should do it. Instead, they had made a new substitute for it that lost all meaning. Instead of eating a feast, they eat a crumb Instead of drinking fully from the cup to quench your thirst for hungering for thirst and righteousness and so forth, they, they take a sip, you know, that you can get more saliva out of your mouth than you can get out of one of those little communion cups. I, you know, it, when I was in the midst of this, I couldn't see it. When I was following my teachers, whom I loved, and I believe they loved me, and I believe they were doing what they understood to be right, but they didn't have a teacher that taught them either. And so they were subject to what their teachers taught them. I was subject to what my teachers taught me. So what's the lesson that comes out of that? Stop listening to other men tell you about God and go listen to what God has to say about God. Open the book for yourself. Go back to the original instruction. What did God say? 
You know, it's, it's like the famous uh, uh, temptation took place in the garden. You know, where, where the devil wanted to get Eve and Adam away from what God said. So he challenges what God, has God said. And then the devil decided to give his version of the teaching. Oh, you will not die. I know the Lord said, you will not die. You'll become like God's. You, you'll make the decisions. You'll, you'll figure it out and so forth. That deception that was in the garden, it's the same dumb deception that's still going on. People are constantly being, uh, say, has God really said that? Oh my, you know, those commandments, oh, we can't do those commandments, so let, let's, let's not have anything to do. And this festival, this is a Jewish thing, you know, that's not for us, we're not Jews, we're not, we're not part of this. Everybody, that's a lie. Yes, you are part of this. If you're of the seed of Abraham, you are of the Messiah. And if you are part of the Messiah, then you're part of what God set up with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul even iterates, don't you know your father came through the Passover? You're supposed to teach your son that you came through the Passover? You're supposed to teach him that? And we're supposed to keep this commandment. This commandment that God gave to the whole assembly of all believers, not just some physical descendants of Jacob, the whole assembly. If we're going to be in the assembly that we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the King of Israel, the Messiah King of Israel, if we're going to be part of that assembly, then these instructions belong to us. And in fact, this is what constitutes and proves your identity in him. Yeshua said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, we are a short time away, and we're in February of this year at the moment, but coming up in April, we're going to have Passover. So we're about, you know, a couple of months away from observing this. And the Lord is giving us the instruction here for it. And you're listening to my voice, and you're hearing me teach about the Torah. And brethren, let me just say to you, when the Passover comes up this year and this season... This is a commandment of the Lord, and you are commanded to observe this memorial and to join with your brethren and eat the Passover with them. And the Messiah kept the Passover with his disciples. You're supposed to follow the example of the Messiah, and you're supposed to remember what the Messiah has done for us. You're supposed to remember the promise of the Lamb of God that would deliver us out of captivity and out of sin and out of harm that we would then have a hope and a future for a promised land, the kingdom of God. There's just a tremendous amount of instruction. It's this, this is foundational stuff that has to do with our faith. But at the same time that I say to you that it's foundational and so forth, it's also highly controversial. Because as I said before, I... Uh, as a young Christian fellow, wasn't given this instruction. And if you go and you share this with your family, your friends, your other Christian friends, about the keeping of this, it's completely foreign to them. 
They're not familiar with it. They've never heard the instructions. They don't realize that this is, includes them, you know, before the Lord. And as a result, sharing this and trying to express this and, and have them join in with you and to the assembly as like-minded brethren, keeping the commandment and the memorial together, can actually be kind of traumatic for them. Let me just review very briefly what I have learned and experienced in dealing with people who've had to go through this transition. Number one, if they begin to acknowledge this, this instruction, if they begin to come to terms with this and be reconciled to what God has said here, uh, their heart inside of them will begin to prosecute them. Their heart will indict them for failing to obey the Lord. And what it is, is that it, it, it partly has to do with the, the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin. And you know this, you don't want to hear that you've done something wrong. You know, you're, you're resistive to somebody coming and accusing you of something. And the devil will just exploit the heck out of this thing. You know, and really put a guilt trip on people about this. And most people's first reaction is, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to hear the accusation against me. I'm not going to hear the indictment against me. I'm going to ignore what the Lord has said. That way I don't have a problem. It reminds me of a goofy little proverb I read one time where it says, the fellow says, I've been reading lately that smoking too much and drinking too much and carousing around and so forth is bad for my health and my life. So I've decided to stop reading. You know, and there's a lot of people who, who uh, they've heard that there's these commandments and they've heard that they're supposed to do them and they, they, they don't line up with them. So they've decided, I'm going to stop listening. I'm not going to hear what the Lord has to say anymore. Oh, my goodness, of all of the mistakes you can make, failing to listen to the Lord and turning off and not listening to the Lord is rejecting God and setting yourself up for the ultimate judgment. And you don't have any other righteousness that will get you past that. Well, I've been going to church all these years, and I'm a good guy, and I've given and so forth. That will not cover that you refused to listen to the Lord. By the way, there's not a kid that will get away with that with their parents. There's not a child of God that will get away with that with our Heavenly Father whatsoever. So right off the bat... Folks have to come to terms with that. They have to do it. I have the success I've had in sharing these commandments and trying to encourage people to get back to the Lord with the Passover. And by the way, the Passover is usually the first element for when a person transitions into the Messianic faith. Uh, just like the children of Israel, this was the transition point for them to come out of Egypt. I have seen many, many Messianic brethren who their first steps of beginning to learn about the Torah and the commandments, beginning to connect the Messiah with the instructions of the Torah, is that they saw the Messiah in the Passover, that they got that connection. And so Passover presentations... Uh, people doing the explanation of the Passover, the, uh, the Messiah in the Passover presentations, very popular, a lot of churches. 
Um, this is how people begin to take the first steps of trying to understand it. Then maybe they participate in a Seder. They have no idea what in the world is going on, but you have a leader comes in and walks them through the Seder and all the different cups and, and the, the, the liturgical element of remembering and observing the memorial and the commandment, and then suddenly they realize, oh my goodness, this is what the Messiah did. This is how he did it with his brethren. I'm, I'm doing something that the Messiah did with his brethren. I relate to that. Not sure I understand all this other liturgy, all this other Jewish stuff kind of thing. And, and it, there's enough of a bridge built that they, 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 they go on it. And like what was my experience, I came away after my first Passover Seder with this conclusion. This is the most Christian thing I've ever done in my life. And it was stunning to me. My mind was completely geared in a different direction. And, and suddenly experiencing it, tasting it, being a part of it, I was right there with the Messiah, eating it with him, just like he did with his disciples. And it made perfect sense to me. And it was like, why, why aren't we doing this? And uh, those are the, usually the first steps. This Torah portion is a, really a very significant portion for people who are first learning the Torah. They're first coming into the Torah. It says that God set this up from the very beginning. And this is where, how the Messiah built off of this to give us the new covenant. And so truly that new covenant he gave was the personal part where it personally involves us. Whereas this one was the one to establish for the whole kingdom, for the whole congregation of the Lord. And to be part of the Messiah, you have to be willing to become part of the congregation of the Messiah. Now, churchmen will say, well, that's the church. That's the church. Let's, let's talk about that for a moment. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Any good Greek scholar and Christian teacher will tell you, ecclesia means the called out assembly. Do you know where the first time ecclesia is used in the scriptures? In the Greek Septuagint, it's used in this portion. The assembly that God is speaking to here is the assembly that's being called out of Egypt to be delivered, to be making the journey to the promised land. The first called out assembly is the congregation of Jacob. That's the first church. Now, we don't use the word church. We just say assembly, congregation, kahilat in the Hebrew. But it means exactly the same thing. So how did we get this idea that a church is something different than what God was doing here? English word, the English word church. You know, the, the Jews, they use for their assembly, they use synagogue or kahilat, congregation. Well, the Christians said, well, we can't use the same one they use. We don't want to have an assembly place called a synagogue. We'll call it a church. We're the called out assembly. They're called out from the world to belong to the Lord. Well, I, I agree with that. But they don't realize that they, they're also part of the called out assembly from Egypt so that they could eat the Passover and they could be delivered out of captivity and go to the promised land. This is the first called out assembly. 
So the whole concept of the big church definition, that's completely fabricated and set up to be a part of what God said from the very beginning. That's the reason I wanted you to point out to you this first word, speak to all the congregation of Israel. In the Greek Septuagint, that's where ecclesia first shows up. The called out assembly. Because at this point with this Passover, God's going to call out the children of Israel, the congregation of Israel. He's going to call them out of Egypt so we can go. And that has never changed. That is the story, the gospel story for all of us that we're all being called out of Egypt and we're being called to be, to be joined with the congregation of the Lord to learn his instructions, his commandments, his ways, and we're on this journey to the promised land. The Messiah didn't come and set up something different from this. He did not set up anything different from this. In fact, what he does is he claims this called out assembly belongs to him. Just like it belonged to him when he offered himself and brought the children of Israel out. And I can show you other passages where it says the Messiah was part of bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in fact, as Paul said, don't you know that rock with the water was up? Don't you know that was the Messiah? Don't you know that the cloud that led them by day and by night? Don't you know that was the glory of the Messiah? Don't you know that was the Messiah in the camp? Don't you know that when God came down on the mountain and spoke the Ten Commandments, don't you know that was the Messiah speaking to them? You don't know that Moses didn't go up and spend time with the Messiah? God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Father and He are one. This is the God we serve. This God in these chapters of Exodus is the same God we serve today under the new covenant. None of this got changed. God didn't change. These instructions didn't change. These are still the instructions that we're to follow. And these are the same things that the Messiah Yeshua himself did. And he instructed his disciples to do. And he gave the great commission. And he said, go out and train up disciples in all the ways I have commanded you. These are all the ways the Messiah has commanded us. And we should be teaching the same commandments to everybody else. Well, guys, you know, we know that not all of Israel that that came out of Egypt ultimately made it to the promised land. People were at different levels and layers of, they wanted to be saved, but a lot of them didn't want to do necessarily what the Lord said. They were willing to take God as long as they got the blessings, but they didn't want any responsibility for their behavior or their actions, or they thought that they were entitled to do things differently than what the Lord had said. And and as we go through the rest of the Torah, you'll hear about the murmurings and the grumblings and, uh, and how the people were judged. They were judged in the wilderness. That, and th- this is the whole assembly that they ate the Passover, they were covered by the blood, and they, they, they got saved and delivered. And we have the same issues today. 
not everybody that we meet who says they're part of the assembly and says they believe in the Lord, not everybody is willing to really take the Lord at his word and go do what the Lord has said or to follow what the Lord has said. Even in the messianic movement, we have people that are here hanging around and they still don't keep the appointed times of the Lord. Some of them don't even keep Sabbath. Some of them are even the most basic of commandments that we have. Some of them are still not doing it. Why? I'll tell you why. They really don't believe. They're just caught up with a group of people and kind of doing the same things, just following along, you know, like lemmings, you know, one after another. And, but there's, they're mindless, brainless, and it doesn't affect them. The Messiah came to give us a new covenant so that the commandments would be written right on the tablets of our heart and it would be personal to us. How much more of a message do we need from God to try to get us to understand this is about us and God and God truly loves us and desires us to be part of his assembly and that we should be a part of it. This great ancient story is a story about us. And I believe we should take it to heart and we should make it a reality in our lives and the lives of our families. So that's our portion. By the way, Egypt gets destroyed. The good guys win. And we're all on the same journey. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you for this portion and for the commandment of uh, Passover. Thank you for your deliverance and your great judgments that fell upon your enemies. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will begin to pour out your judgments upon your enemies and that you'll begin to deliver your people and we'll be on the final journey to go to the promised land and be part of your kingdom. Until that time, Lord, we will continue to be faithful and steadfast and occupy. And help us, Lord, to remember to keep these memorial commandments, to remember the story, to teach our children and our grandchildren of this great story so that they can be a part of it. We know, Lord, that if a single generation fails to keep that commandment, the whole story gets lost and the destiny for our children is lost as well. So we ask, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us, encourage us, edify us, so that we might continue on even with our children and grandchildren. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Le
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.